Let's remember the preciousness of our life and the, the opportunity to practice that doesn't happen so often in samsara. And so appreciating this opportunity let's use it wisely and really contemplate the path of monastic practice its value and purpose and how it's done and let's do this in order to attain the highest enlightenment for the benefit of all beings After Ratnapala's story, I was thinking of telling you another story today, but I decided not to. <laughs> uh, and to do some, some more, you know, other kinds of material, and then maybe come back to some other stories a little bit later on. Um, the ultimate purpose of, of taking monastic ordination is to, from a Mahayana viewpoint, more Mahayana practitioners, is to attain full enlightenment for the benefit of sentient beings. And the more manifest or temporary um, purpose of it is to uh, regulate our behavior and to create a container, a space in which um, all the members of the monastic community can practice uh, in in a way that helps them attain their ultimate goal. Okay, so we all have the same ultimate goal. You know, not only our liberation but the, the enlightenment of all beings. But we're trying to create a container together that will facilitate all of our individual practices, as well as our group practice. So the purpose of having a monastic community is not to have an institution, okay? And it's not to perpetuate a religious hierarchy with an institution, okay? Repeat, (laughs) because I know there's some people in the listening audience who, (laughs) you know, is our purpose is not to create a social institution that has the purpose of self-perpetuation. And it's not to create a religious hierarchy with a dogma and, you know, that just tries to squeeze everybody. Okay, that's not the purpose. We have a community, we have organization to the extent that it facilitates everybody's dharma practice. So that's the purpose of the community is to facilitate our individual dharma practices and to make a container so that other people can meet the dharma. Okay, so it's not just for our own dharma practice, but it's so as to, to actually benefit society here and now in this life as well by 
being a place where other people can meet the Dharma, where they can create merit, where they can be inspired. Okay? So, um, having, a, a, you know, the community, I mean, if, if you look and, and you study the way uh, the Vinaya is, it's very clear that the Buddha wanted monastics to be in a community. He didn't want us off on our own doing our own trip. Even the people who were wanderers in the very early days, they wandered together. Even the people who went on Pindapop with their alms bowls, they went together. They came back to the, the garden together and they meditated together. They stuck together as a group and then twice a month they gathered uh, to recite the precepts which were part of the, the bonding um, things that helped them to live together harmoniously in a community. So having a community, you know, when I was saying it benefits the individual, well, we can see that because, you know, if the community's doing something, we all do it. So it becomes easier to get up in the morning, easier to stay for the whole meditation session, and so on. Um, when there's things going on in your mind, you can talk about them with other people who have the same interests, who share your same purpose in life who are going to understand what you're doing. Sometimes if you're trying to to live by precepts and live a spiritual life, if you try and describe it to other people who are not interested in spirituality, they have no clue what you're talking about. So we really act as a tremendous support for each other. And then, of course, we learn from each other. We teach each other. There are so many things that happen together in community. And then in terms of how the community benefits uh, the society, I think there's several different ways. Um, Some people have written to us that just knowing that we're here is inspiring for them. Because they just know that there's somebody in the world who's trying to overcome ignorance, anger, and attachment. Somebody who's trying to keep pure ethics, you know, in this world where the CEOs and the politicians are doing who knows what. There's some people trying to keep their ethics. There's some people who are trying to develop love and compassion. Of course, the mass community is not perfect. We don't have perfect ethics. We haven't perfectly developed love and compassion. But I think that it acts as an inspiring thing for society so that you know people in the craziness of their life and, you know, in the, in the despair they feel after the six o'clock news can, can look and say that there's goodness in the world. So I think that that's a very, very powerful purpose um, that we serve as a community. I remember one time, this was a couple of years ago, when the Abbey was just starting, I was on a flight from Seattle to Madison, or Minneapolis or somewhere, and I was sitting uh, next to a woman who was a, uh, a teacher, I think, at the community college, or one of the colleges around here. We started talking about the Abbey and different things, and she was, wanted to go to, I think, Kazakhstan or somewhere. 
uh, you know, that her friends were telling her no because she wanted to teach ESL. And so I was encouraging her to do that. And she was asking about the Abbey. And we had a very nice discussion. And then, and she wasn't Buddhist at all, you know. Um, and then right as we, well, the plane touched down, she just reached in her bag and then her hand was closed and she just said, here, here's something for your Abby. And, and I took it and put it in my bag. I didn't make any big deal about it or anything like that. And, and we said our goodbyes and never really got her name. And then later I looked and she'd given me a hundred dollar bill for the Abby, you know. And she wasn't even a Buddhist. But it was because she found something that we were doing was inspiring for her in her life and gave her some sense of confidence and hope and optimism. And she wanted to put her resources where her values were. So we provided that opportunity for her to do that. I think a monastery also, in terms of how we affect society, in some way we act as society's conscience. Yeah? Because politicians are doing who knows what. CEOs are doing we know what. Um, the employers are also doing the same thing as the CEO. Or the employees are probably doing the same thing as the CEOs. It permeates the whole system. Um, but we act as a conscience because we're saying we don't want to live like that. Yeah? And so it's, it's kind of like a, a, a reminder to society, you know, for people who see us to check up, oh, how, how am I living and how are they living? And, you know, if we write articles, if we speak in public, we're kind of acting as a conscience in some way, not in a deliberate way, and we certainly don't want to give people a guilty conscience, but just how, what we're trying to do with our lives is different enough from the standard societal model that it makes people question and ask themselves, well, what are my values and how am I living? And I think that that can be very, very helpful. And you can see in, in times of uh, war or crisis in a country, you know, a religion, religious people really act as a conscience in some sort of way. You might remember in, in Vietnam when some of the Vietnamese monastics were setting themselves on fire. You know, they were saying to the international community, what are you doing? How is what you are doing going to bring peace? So I'm not saying that we have to set ourselves on fire. Please don't do that, okay? <laughs> but, you know, somehow we can, we can provide that, that function, which I think can be very helpful for people, either on an individual level or on a societal level. Okay. Um, in terms of... Uh, the, the, how we live together, okay? The Vinaya talked about six kinds of harmony that a monastic community lives together in. And 
I, just, I think this is, is very, very beautiful, so I wanted to share it with you. I'll just list them and then go back. It's physical harmony, verbal harmony, mental harmony, uh, harmony in, in how we keep the precepts, uh, harmony in our views, and harmony in uh, welfare or the use of resources. And I think if we keep these, these six harmonies in mind, then we know how to create a monastic community that furthers our own individual spiritual practices and, and acts as something beneficial for society as a whole. So the physical harmony, um, that means that physically we live together in a peaceful way. Okay, so you know, in a monastic community, there there's no beating, there's no hitting, there's you know, physically we are we practice nonviolence, and that's a very strong thing. And many of the monastic precepts relate to nonviolent physical behavior. Yeah, and so the precepts regulate us. You know, some people have difficulty. You know, they get revved up and they might want to be physically violent and some people don't have as much difficulty with that but if you're somebody who has difficulty with that when you've taken the precepts you know which regulate that you know you can't push people and you can't beat them and you can't kick them out of their room and things like that then it helps act as a reminder and as the precepts act like a dam that holds back the water of our afflictive emotions so that the, the Emotions don't get acted out verbally and physically. Okay? So we create a, a safe place by living together uh, peacefully. Then verbal harmony is to really make an effort at good communication. So this is really a challenge, you know? Good communication. And so it's something that everybody in the community has to participate in to have good communication. You can't have some of the community who communicates well and then other people who distance themselves who don't want to communicate that doesn't create harmony yeah we have to have verbal harmony which means we all we all communicate together which means that you know we we learn to listen to other people and we also learn to speak okay so in terms of listening we we learn to listen, um, you know, and, and really take in what other people are saying. So this helps us, because sometimes, you know, in, in discussions, somebody's saying something, and they say something we don't like, and we need to correct it right away. Because if we don't correct it right away, well, it might get acted out, and that's just horrible, you know. So if somebody says some view we don't like or has an opinion on how to put the dishes away in the cupboard and we don't like it, you know, we have to interrupt them right away and, and correct it. So in verbal harmony, we, we learn to kind of watch that impulse in ourselves that feels we need to correct everything and to let people say things, let them express themselves and then know that there's time for us to speak later and to exchange ideas. In verbal harmony, we also learn to speak and to say what's on our mind. 
Okay, so instead of keeping things squished down because we're afraid if we say them that people will criticize them or they won't like us or, you know, who knows what, we have to learn to, to speak up and let people know where we're at, what we're going through. And if there's something bothering us, then we have to learn to express it in a way so that other people can hear it. So we learn to express things in a non-aggressive way. So this is, again, quite a skill that it takes a lot of training at. Because usually when, you know, if we're mad or we don't like what somebody's doing, it comes right out of the mouth, doesn't it? And we never stop and think, oh, is this some, am I expressing it in a way that other people can understand it and hear it? So in verbal communication, we have to slow down a little bit and think, you know, kind of what is the best situation to bring this topic up in? Should I bring it up to the individual alone? Should I bring it up to the community? Should I go to the abbot or abbess? How is it best to bring it up? To whom? In what circumstance? How shall I talk about it? Okay. So, you know, we can't, because a community, when we're living together this intimately, we can't survive if we all stuff stuff down and then go to our room and, you know, that doesn't work. Nor does it work to stuff it down when we're in a community meeting and then after we leave, we talk with our best friend and say, Oh, look at so and so and what they did and I can't stand it. You know, this thing of like complaining about people behind their backs does not work in a monastic community. Yeah, because then it just forms factions and it creates disgruntledness and everything. So we need to learn kind of to whom and when and how to express things. And we need to learn to listen. Okay, so it's, it's, uh, it's quite a, a, a challenge and quite a learning process. But we do it together. Yeah, and we help each other do it. Okay. And we all are working on the assumption that sometimes we make mistakes. And that sometimes we or somebody else will say something in the wrong way at the wrong time to the wrong person. And, you know, and we learn just to kind of, you know, expect that, not get too bent out of shape, give us some space, know that we can meet together again and, you know, and rectify it and bring about some good communication. Okay. So we learn somehow not to have so much knee-jerk reaction when people say things. Mm-hmm which I think is important because, you know, if we look in our life generally, and this could, could be an interesting topic for meditation or even discussion, but for us to look at, well, what do we do when we're working or living together with somebody and they do something that bugs us? You know, what is our usual strategy for dealing with it? And how, what are the outcomes of our usual behavior along that line? Yes, and if you look in families, what you know, what do people do? Yeah, usually they either explode and yell and scream and slam some doors or throw something, 
or they break down and they're hysterical and you can't talk to them or they slam the door and walk out and they're not even there to talk to or they mope and pout yeah what other kind of things do you see in families we've all had family experience how does family deal with conflict hmm yeah silence yeah everybody is dead silent and you're waiting for the explosion to happen Uh so you know this is kind of human beings usual strategy for dealing with things we don't like but that strategy doesn't work in a monastery (laughs) yeah we keep trying it (laughs) yeah we keep doing it because you know those are our habits and that's all we know how to do you know we've never learned any other constructive ways for expressing ourselves or for dealing with our anger or dislike so we just keep on doing the same old things and we keep getting the same old responses except the community says "Uh -uh." (laughs) uh-uh you know we've we've got to together learn a new way to to deal with this you know that way won't work I remember one um, Catholic novice mistress we were talking one day and she was telling me that you know there was one person in her novitiate who came from a very very you know tumultuous family background and so as a result she was comfortable only when there was chaos somehow when when things were smoothly going along it felt so strange and uncomfortable because her family was so chaotic and so as part of living in the novitiate somehow without her even consciously being aware she would do and say things that got people you know worked up about something and so she kind of recreated the chaos that was in her family and so this novice mistress said that she she told me that she had to go to that that woman and say you know you're doing this and it's not working here yeah you cannot do that to this community you have to find another way to express so it's interesting you know because some of us uh, you know came up in the discussion some people feel really uncomfortable when there's uh, vocalized anger when people are yelling and screaming some people feel really uncomfortable when there's the silent kind of anger stuck down kind of anger um, so sometimes we you know we, we do all sorts of stuff without even being aware of it but part of the function of the community is to help us all learn to communicate better hmm? And if you think about it, to benefit sentient beings, this is a very valuable practice, isn't it? How are we going to benefit sentient beings if we can't hear them? And if we can't communicate with them? Well, somehow, you know, we help each other with this one. Okay, then there's um, mental harmony. So mental harmony means that we appreciate each other 
So within the Sangha community, we really appreciate each other. We support each other. We respect each other. And I think that's so important. You know, and so at the beginning of the day, that's why everybody bows to each other. Yeah? And I think it's, it's very helpful also in the course of the day, sometimes really to greet each other with our palms together. At Shasta Abbey and in the Order of Buddhist Contemplatives, they're always doing that. And you'll see uh, Reverend Clarice is coming at the end of this month. She'll be with us for 10 days. And she's always, you know, bowing like this. And when you walk in a room, you bow. When you leave the room, you bow. And when you meet somebody, you bow. And, and there's something very beautiful about that. Because just the physical gesture trains your mind in respect. You know, it's like, I've heard that they did some kind of research, and when you force yourself to smile, you automatically feel happier, because somehow just the physical action of smiling affects something in your brain or constituency that makes you happy. Well, I think similarly, just the physical action of going like this helps us appreciate you know that's why when we're in front of the altar we're like this yeah and when we greet each other you know to be like this it automatically I think changes the mind and creates respect and this is so important in a community and having lived in many communities where people don't make this an important point of their community life I have to say that if it's not something we all train in, then living in community is totally miserable. Okay? Because if people don't respect and support and appreciate each other, what you get instead is power trips. Okay? You get somebody trying to pull rank on somebody else to make themselves feel better. You get competition. You know, people of different monastics competing together for, you know, I want to be near the teacher. No, I'm going to bring the tea. No. You, know. uh, you get people being jealous of each other. I mean, just from my own experience with my own teacher, I think this was one of the ways he trained us. But it was painful, you know. Because there were constant jealousy trips, you know, disciples being jealous. How come you got to do puja with Rinpoche? How come you got to cook for him? How come he talked to you and didn't talk to me? How come you got to help write the letter and I didn't get to help him write the letter? So many jealousy trips. And then, of course, People being proud and arrogant. I got to help the teacher. Your help is not needed. Thank you very much. You can wash the dishes in the kitchen. You know? And so you get some people being proud and arrogant. And then some people being jealous and all this competition. And it's really unpleasant. So sometimes that revolves around the teacher. Everybody's trying to get the teacher's attention and be the teacher's favorite and, or, or even it doesn't revolve around the teacher we're all trying to pre- present ourselves as very together practitioners who don't have any doubt any problem or anything you know and I found 
for, with myself for many years it was so hard for me to even talk to my fellow monastics because I was you know if I, if I talked about what was really going on inside then they would all know what a lousy practitioner I was and I didn't want them to know what a lousy practitioner I was because they all look so good you know of course I think they were probably doing the same thing we were all trying to impress each other but meanwhile inside it was turmoil yeah whereas I find it just so much easier if you know if we appreciate each other and respect each other then we're not trying to compete and prove to each other oh look my meditation's so good and you know, I have such far out experiences, or I memorized the whole te- passage, you know, that was getting taught, or blah, 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 you know. But so instead of getting into those competition trips, we really try and help each other. Yeah? So helping each other takes many forms, you know. Sometimes we, we listen compassionately, sometimes we have to admonish each other and kind of give each other a wake-up call but we have to do it in a kind way you know so that other people know that how we're speaking to them isn't us dumping our stuff on them but we're doing it because we really care and we see that somehow they're stuck in some way you getting what I mean? yeah but really having this underlying feeling of respect and care and concern and I think this comes from a few things one is knowing that we're all basically alike yeah and you know have, have our afternoon discussions kind of given you that feeling yeah. in some way yeah we're all very much the same just different kind of variations on some things but we all have you know the same qualities and we're all working with them in one way or another and by sharing and discussing these kinds of things then we help each other we help each other tremendously by sharing ideas sharing experiences because it's so terrible when you're trying to practice the Dharma and then your mind gets in this thing of I'm the only one who has this problem yeah you're laughing like you know that (laughs) yeah and when we get ourselves boxed in you know oh I'm the only one who you know has a a mindful of lust I'm I'm the only one who gets so angry I'm the only one who falls asleep in meditation you know (laughs) you know and this you know when we start to think I'm the only one then we just spin round and around inside and then we get all you know we get filled with shame and lack of self-confidence and we beat ourselves up and it's also totally unnecessary because we're all going through the same stuff you know and slightly like I said slightly different varieties on the theme but it's all the same stuff isn't it yeah and so when we can be honest and like own our own stuff and talk about it then we don't need to feel like we're the only one we don't need to feel like you know everybody's going to judge us and criticize us if they find out that you know we have a problem with XYZ 
Instead, you know, we kind of, we develop some trust and we realize that we can go to each other and kind of, you know, admit our faults and admit our weaknesses and, and seek help from each other. So when we're having a problem, you know, then we know we can go to each other and say, you know, my mind's just really tripping out about, you know, retention. <laughs> Or, you know, or retention and dissimulation. My mind's tripping out about that. Or I'm really anxious. Or, you know, I'm full of grief. Or whatever it is. And we know that we can trust and go to each other and talk about it in a very free way. And nobody's going to look at us and go, Oh boy, what a slob, you know, can't get it together. But but there's, you know, there's, there's compassion there. And there's people who you know, have dealt with the same things we're dealing with or who are dealing with it themselves and that they can help us. Yeah? And so I think when we, when we can learn to be relaxed and share of ourselves in this way, then our whole Dharma practice goes so much easier because it takes so much energy to try and project an image of being a together practitioner when we're not. Yeah, and so all of our energy goes into creating that very false image and instead of to actually doing practice. Yeah. So when we just can kind of relax about things, it's, it's just so much nicer. Okay. And, and I've really seen, too, in communities where people go on power trips, Oh, it's so unpleasant. Yeah. So this thing of, I've been ordained longer than you. You should listen to me. You know, or I'm fully ordained. You're a novice. Listen to me. Or, you know, I won't do the other ones. But, you know, people get into these kinds of trips and it's just, it's certainly not Dharma practice. Yeah. And it really, it's, it's very, very hard on people. So, of course, there is a thing of how we respect our seniors and, the, you know, the ones who are novices respect those who are fully ordained. But it doesn't mean that the people who are fully ordained can be bosses and tell everybody what to do and expect everybody to weigh down them hand and foot. Actually, there's a very... There's just as the Buddha created this dependent relationship between the Sangha and the lay community, there's a dependent relationship between juniors and seniors. So juniors, you know, often they serve the seniors or you serve your teacher, but then the teacher and the seniors has the commitment and the obligation to care for the Dharma practice of the juniors. So it's a very reciprocal thing. So if people aren't trained and they don't know this, then they go on these trips about, about that. And it's just very, very unpleasant. Okay? So there's certain kinds of things. You know, you can see in the lunch line, there's, you know, a certain order that we go in. But it's just an ordination order. It doesn't mean that the people in the front of the line are closer to enlightenment or that they can tell everybody else what to do. Okay, and actually, I heard of a of a monastery in Thailand where once a week they completely reverse the order, and they go in 
in the alphabet order. So all the lay people get lunch first, and then the novices, you know, and then the junior, and then the seniors. And so, you know, so in certain things there's that kind of hierarchy. But when you're working together on other practices, you know, and other things, then you have to listen to the person who is in charge of that area, whether or not they are senior or junior to you. It doesn't matter. Okay? So, you know, if somebody has a, is in charge of, of a particular area, they're, like we have the, the relics tour come, coming up. Barbara is the organizer. So when Barbara distributes responsibilities, we all listen to her. You know, it doesn't matter where she is in the ordination thing. That's her job. That's her responsibility. We all follow her in that way. So, you know, in different jobs like this, if you're going to, you know, do certain things with, um, with the uh, ex-gazebo area, then, you know, you're going to listen to Nance and Carl and follow what they say. Yeah. So, it, you know, it depends on, on who the, the chief in a certain department is. You know, then we, we, you know, follow that person. We may try to voice some of our ideas, you know, to, if we think that they're helpful. But when somebody's organizing a work team, you know, if we can do and join in, then, then we do it. Okay? So, it, but it comes from this basic, I think, kind of respect. And what I've also discovered is when we respect other practitioners, then we respect ourselves as a practitioner. When we don't, when we are competing with other practitioners or jealous of them or proud over them, then there's something about we're not really respecting our own self as a practitioner. I've really seen this. And unfortunately, you know, this does happen in the Western Sangha. Um, And in the Tibetan tradition particularly, there's some interesting dynamics. Um, And I'm just sharing with you rather freely here. Okay? If you're a Westerner and you go to the Thai tradition or the Chinese tradition, they are very happy to have you in the Sangha. And you are treated very well, and people really respect you. In the Tibetan tradition, the dynamic is different. Yeah, uh, the Tibetans, because I think they're refugees, and we're Westerners, they see us as people who are wealthy, and so we are regarded often as people who can help them with fundraising for their projects and for their monasteries. And, and also, um, to say, that, you know, because there's such uh, rigorous study involved in, let's say, becoming a Geshe, many, many years, 15, 20 years of study, that they tend to respect the people who either have the Geshe degree or who are Rinpoche's, you know, recognized rebirths of practitioners. And since Westerners generally are not, and we haven't studied as much as them, and we don't speak their language and whatever, you know, we're we're not welcomed in the same way that we are in the Theravada Chinese tradition. And so what what I've seen develop, 
And also I think because in Tibetan Buddhism there's so much emphasis placed in Vajrayana on the Guru that people don't value the Sangha as much. Everybody just thinks about the Guru, the Guru, the Guru. Yeah? And so people, you know, they see so many teachings on relying on the spiritual master and how to relate to the teacher and all the, the strong karma you create with your Vajrayana master that everybody just thinks about the guru and, and it isn't emphasized the whole sangha relationship whereas in other traditions that relationship is very much emphasized so westerners not having had a lot of teachings on that are emphasized in it then we come to Tibetan Buddhism and we think oh well unless you're born as a Rinpoche you know you kind of don't know anything about the Dharma unless you have a Geshe degree well you don't know much about the Dharma so here are all these Westerners who aren't Rinpoches and aren't Geshe so you know they grew up with Mickey Mouse just like me you know they don't know very much and there's this kind of thing of if you are a Tibetan male in robes then you are very highly respected okay um, if you are a Tibetan male not in robes you're very highly respected yeah but, and then from there then you know <laughs> there's other degrees <laughs> yeah but uh, I find that that and, and actually that kind of way exists it's from the Tibetan society that's how they respect within the Tibet community too okay and so the westerners see that we copy it you know if somebody's a Tibetan they must know a lot they must be highly realized we will do anything they say um, you know we will pamper them they will sit on a high throne blah, blah, blah. but um, even if they've just been ordained a short time or you know or whatever, but somebody who's a Westerner, well, like I said, grew up with Mickey Mouse, so they don't know very much. And I, and I think that when Westerners have that view about other Westerners, then we don't respect ourselves as spiritual practitioners. You know? Because we have this weird kind of racism of you have to be Asian to be a real practitioner, and the rest of us, well, you know... Okay, and it works in a very subtle way to make you lose your your self confidence. So that's why I think it, it's quite important within Western Dharma practitioners to really respect each other, because that's what I mean. When we respect other practitioners, then it helps us respect ourselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I just know for myself, for example, I mean, I lived many, many years in India and in the West, and, you know, I'm just a West practitioner, none, you know, nuns don't know much. Um, when I went to Singapore, uh, I was sent there to teach at the Dharma Center, but the Singaporeans really respect Sangha, and they don't care what race you are, you know. They just care that you have vows and you're holding your vows. And so people were started calling me venerable. Before that, nobody ever called me venerable, you know. And when I when people first called me venerable, I was really embarrassed. And I said, some of them were coming to Damsala with me for His Holiness's teachings. And I said, don't call me venerable in front of my friends. They'll think that I'm on some ego trip. 
And they said, well, don't worry, we're going to call your friends venerable also because they're ordained. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and it was, you know, it was weird for me to get used to pe- people calling me with a title and actually respecting me as a monastic. Because I was so used to, you know, when I was in France at the Dharma Center, the nuns cleaned the lay people's toilets and the nuns cooked for the lay people. And, you know, and that's the way it was. And none of us had any money. And, you know, well, not none of us, but most of us didn't have much money. And that's, that's the way it was. But I found that when people started respecting me just as, as a monastic, that all of a sudden I started feeling so much more responsible for how I was acting, you know? And I became so much more aware of, wow, these people are looking at me for spiritual in- inspiration, so I better really be more conscientious about how I'm acting. And it really helped my practice very much, you know? Now, I'm sure some people, when they're respected, get kind of, you know, and you see this. It's so funny. Whenever you go to teachings with His Holiness, you know how you can tell the people who are newly ordained? They always go sit in front. Yeah? They think, now I'm ordained, I'm going to sit in the very front. Forget about sitting in ordination order. You know, they think, oh, now I'm ordained. I'm equal to everybody. Yeah? And, you know, they'll just sit right, plop themselves right in front. Yeah, but so that's not a good attitude to have if people are calling you venerable or whatever, you know. I mean, it really should affect you in a way where you feel more humble and more responsible and more conscientious. You know, again, it doesn't mean you have to be perfect. And if people expect us to be perfect, then they have wrong ideas. Okay, Um, because anyway, I don't know what perfect means. But um, it does mean that, that, you know, if people are respecting us, we should try and be worthy of that respect. And similarly, we should give respect to other people. And here, we respect other Sangha members simply because they're ordained. Okay? So, um, and what we're respecting in them is the vow that came from the Buddha. And similarly, when other people, be they Sangha or lay people, show us respect, it isn't respect shown to us personally, so it's nothing to get proud about, but they're respecting the vows that came from the Buddha. Okay? So they always say that, you know, if somebody shows you respect, then you imagine the Buddha in your heart or on top of your head, and you think that they're respecting the Buddha, and that way, as a monastic, you don't get arrogant. Okay, so I mean, the way people show respect when I'm in Singapore, it's quite different. And some of you may find it interesting sometimes to come with me when I'm in Asia. You know, when I'm in Singapore, you know, people come to see me, they bow down, or they kneel, or they make offerings, and you know, Westerners are just very kind of relaxed every which way. Yeah, but you you have to get used to to receiving respect knowing that it's not for you personally you know and then and then using that to, to help you create compassion and a determination to, to practice um, as a way of respecting them you know? 
Okay, so, so I think that this whole thing of, you know, mutual respect, mutual appreciation is, is quite important. Okay. Yeah. And, and showing it externally, I think, can, is very, very good for our minds. Yeah. Or, um, you know, showing it in different ways. And, of course, we, we all will find different ways to show it, and different cultures show it in different ways. But it can be very helpful for our minds. I personally feel, and here at the Abbey, um, this is the way we're doing things, that respect is shown on a gender equal basis. Okay, and I think that's quite important for uh, Buddhism in the West. Okay, so that's a little bit about mental harmony. Okay.